Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Al Pino. I have the, of course, said the privilege of being one of the two pastors here. To the guests, welcome. Uh, it's, uh, it's my joy to introduce to you this morning Dave Harvey. For those members of Palm Vista Community Church and those who attended the marriage conference last Sunday, Dave needs no introduction. But for our guests and for those who might be new to Palm Vista, let me begin by saying that Dave Harvey is a dear friend. That's the most important thing. And he is also responsible for church care, church planting, and international expansion for Sovereign Grace Ministries. He has served as a member of the Sovereign Grace Ministries leadership team since 1995 and is based in Philadelphia out of Covenant Fellowship Church, the church that he led for 19 years. Now, Dave is currently working on a book about ambition. And so knowing this, I've asked Dave to please speak to us this morning about ambition and contentment. So can we welcome Dave Harvey, please? Thank you, buddy. I was just sitting in the front row there trying to summarize in my mind why I've been anticipating being here. And uh, there were two things that immediately came into my mind. Actually, there were three things that immediately came into my mind. First is um, that I rarely have an opportunity to travel with my wife, which is odd because there's no one I want to travel with more than my wife, but I rarely get to do that. But my wife is here this morning. And so we get to be here with you, but we get to be here together. So that's a joy, and that's part of the reason why I was anticipating being with you. Uh, there was another reason as well, though, and that was because I knew that this weekend was going to provide us with an opportunity to get to, to, get to hang out with Al and Des a little bit. So we, we stayed in their home together and just had a number of wonderful meals, went out last night and enjoyed some rich fellowship. This couple just kind of... They, they emit a tractor beam that draws you to them and draws you into deep and rich fellowship. And so that's, that's what our entire weekend has been like, and, and, uh, and that's been wonderful. And I, I want to say this as well. You're going to have to look long and hard in sovereign grace. You're, you're going to have to look long and hard in the world to find a man who loves his church more than this guy right here. Uh, <clears throat> To sit with Al is to be on the receiving end of a, a catalog of, his, uh, of the individuals in the church, specific descriptions of, of, of who they are, what they love, what they're like. I mean, I feel like I know this church after having just sat with Al for a couple of days. He, he just loves you, and he loves talking about you. In fact, people over Sovereign Grace that you'll never know know you because of this guy. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And so I'd lo- I love sitting across from him because I just see his heart for, for God's people and his heart for you in particular. And, uh, and so that was the second thing that came into my mind. Um, and, and there was a third as well, and that is that Kim and I are traveling with two dear couples, two sets of friends, and I want to introduce you to them 
individually. First is uh, Mark and Jill Prater. Mark, I'm going to have these guys stand along with Kim, and you can greet them. But let me just tell you a little bit about these guys and, and what they mean to me. Uh, Mark Prater is the executive pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church. Um, Mark also serves on the Sovereign Grace Ministries church planting group. So there's a group of folks up in Philadelphia that are, have kind of banded together to, to improve and make sure church planting is taking place in Sovereign Grace as aggressively and as responsibly as possible. Um, as I said, Mark is here with his wife, Jill. Mark is a man of great humility, a man of great loyalty, a man of... of he, Mark is this extraordinary mix of, of unusual competence and Christ-like care. They're, they're kind of married together in, in one man. And, uh, and I know that because this man has, has pastored Kim and I for a number of years, and we have been on the receiving end of, of, of that care. And because of that, Kim and I both feel, my whole family feels, a, a deep sense of gratitude for Mark and his wife, Jill. And then sitting next to them are the farmers, Andy Farmer and his wife, Jill. And uh, Andy is an elder at Covenant Fellowship Church. He's a, an expert counselor. He's a, a great writer. Uh, but he also serves on the Sovereign Grace Ministries Church Planting Group. And um, Kim and I came to Covenant Fellowship Church in 1985. And I think the next week we met the farmers. So we go back to 1985 and... Shortly after meeting, we just, we just connected together and, and God knit our hearts and, and just decided that as far as it's possible within our, our ability, we were going to pray to be able to have kids around the same time, to be able to move near each other during the same time. And so we've had multiple homes in different areas where we've all moved, been together, married daughters off now, and, and, uh, and we get to be down here for this weekend. And Andy also... Uh, has the responsibilities for pastoring. Kim, one of the things you get to know me a little better, you, you'll find out this guy needs a lot of pastoring. Uh, I'm like a community project on legs. Um, so I, and I bring them with me everywhere I go, so that helps, that helps me and it relieves them a bit as well. So, so Andy and Jill are, are dear friends as well. So would you, would you just do me the, the service of thanking God for my wife, Kim, and Andy and Jill, and Mark and Jill, would you guys stand so folks can say hello to you? <clears throat> Thank you very much. I love doing that, and I appreciate you doing it with me. Okay, Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to invite you to turn to verse 11, a perhaps a familiar passage on contentment, but I pray that God would ignite it this morning with fresh relevance and fresh meaning for you for right where you are. The title of this morning's message is The Quest for Contentment. And we're going to read verses 11, 12, and 13. So this is Philippians 4, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray You would strengthen me now to serve Your people. You would strengthen all of us to hear Your Word. And I pray that You would move to apply Your Word by Your Spirit so that this morning wouldn't simply be a message preached, another sermon listened to, but there would be an engagement with You by Your Holy Spirit based upon the proclamation of Your Word. Lord, I... I pray this morning that you, would, that you would teach us the secret of contentment. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Al mentioned I've been doing some writing lately <clears throat> on the subject of ambition. And I should probably say up front that I don't really consider myself an author, um, I know that because I hate to write, and people that seem to be authors don't really hate to write, but I hate to write, and as far as I can tell, writing hates me as well. So it's kind of a relationship of mutual dislike. Because I've noticed that, that for some gifted souls, um, writing for them is this exercise. It's an exercise of kind of unleashing the inner author, getting alone and letting the inner author out to play in the field of words, and they just compose on your behalf. But... Uh, that hasn't been my experience. My inner author is kind of like a hermit who uh, rarely wants to come out and just sits in the shadow and sulks with a bad attitude and makes me do all the work. So, <laughs> what I want to say about that, though, is that writing has come to represent something to me. It, it's something that I've always felt called to. In other words, I had an aspiration for, I had an ambition for, but it didn't come in the way I expected and it certainly didn't come in the timetable that I predicted. In fact, for a long stretch, well over a decade, it didn't come at all. The dream remained strong, but it was just out of reach. In fact, it was a location in my life. I, I noticed that, that, that writing was kind of represented an intersection for me where my dreams and my desires and my discontent would collide. My desires and my discontent colliding like two speeding trains on the same track. It was a location in my life akin to like an elephant burial ground where, where uh, the place where my ambitions went to die. And I'm wondering even as I'm saying that whether you have any areas like that. Some incomplete goal, some unfulfilled dream that kind of hovers over you like a, a dark cloud and settles, settles on your soul in the form of of a statement, a statement that stalks you and haunts you and taunts you as it whispers this paralyzing thought, by now I should have been, and just fill in the blank, by now I should have been a supervisor, by now I should have been pregnant, by now I should have been financially stable, by now I should have been married, by now I should have been healthy, by now I should have been a homeowner. By now, I should have been well-traveled. It's the voice of unsatisfied ambition 
And you may not be aware of it, but it's also the voice of discontent. See, discontentment happens when our ambitions are frustrated. We aspire to something, but God does not deliver it, so we stew in self-pity and we wonder why God is so sloppy in the running of His universe. We wonder why God doesn't deliver to us the things that we desire. Because we have not what we desire. Now, I should probably say immediately that to want health, to want a godly spouse, to want a better job, to want travel or leadership, those things are not wrong. In fact, they can actually be a sign of godly ambition at work in our life. But the real issue is how we live and how we feel and how we relate to God when we don't get what we want when we want it. Because as John Calvin said, the evil lies not in the desire. It's that we desire it too much. And when ambitions become demands, people become discontent. When ambition becomes demands, people become discontent. In other words, we have not what we desire. Now there are a lot of things I want to talk about today, but I really want to just telegraph right up front where we're headed. In fact, I want to give you what I believe from Scripture is a key to contentment. And it's summed up in the words of one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, where he once said, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Let me say that again. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. So, that's our destination. That's a feature of this passage. Now, what I want to do is I want you to just move that to the side, suspend that off to the side for a second, and let's just return to Paul, the context and a line-by-line examination of this passage of Scripture. So here we are, Philippians. And once again, we meet Paul. And by the way, he's not perched atop a custom-made, cushioned writing desk with a chair behind it that's all comfortable. He's in prison. And in chapter 1, if we were going to examine the whole book, we would discover that that death is very much on his mind. He talks about that in verse 21 of chapter 1. We would discover as well in terms of the context that, there are, that the church is experiencing attacks from outside and division from within. One of the major thrusts of this book is to address some of the division, some of the disunity that exists among the Philippians. Paul talks about Yodia and Syntyche and the problems they're having in chapter 4. He addresses specifically in chapter 2 the need for them to be united in love and united in mind. He says, make his joy complete in doing those things. He addresses their selfish ambition, their rivalry, because all of those things are denying him. And, and Paul's in prison, but he loves this church. This is, this is a church that is a relatively healthy church, but they're having problems and he wants to get to them. In fact, if you've ever been in a position where there's a problem breaking out for someone you love and you are blocked from helping them, you might be able to identify what the Apostle Paul is going through right here. Because Paul yearned to protect them. He yearned to travel there and to personally teach them and troubleshoot their problems. Those were his aspirations. Those were his desires. Those were his ambitions. But he could not do that. He could not have his desires fulfilled. He was confined. He was in prison. And the only way to act on his ambition was to write a letter and send somebody else on his behalf. And so he does. 
And in chapter 4, he addresses specifically the subject of their financial support. And this is what he says. He thanks God for it, but he doesn't need it. Because Paul has learned to live having not what he desired. In fact, let's just listen to him talk about it in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, he certainly is talking about financial need there, but he also goes beyond this because in just a moment he says, for I've learned in whatever situation. So it's not just financial need, it's whatever situation. Let me read this again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now think about this. Paul's in prison right now. He is restrained. Paul's in prison, he's restrained, he's confined, but he's not in need. Why? Why? I think it's because he's unlocked this mystery of contentment. He had what what Jeremiah Burroughs called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And this is how Paul described it. In whatever situation I've learned to be content. Unless we don't understand exactly what he means, unless we're tempted to fill in the idea of contentment with just some kind of generic definition, he says, I can abound, I can be brought low. I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all of that without being plagued by the question of, by now I should have been wherever. What's so interesting about the, this book of Philippians, this epistle, is that in it we discover a, a paradox, a, an apparent contradiction, a tension, if you will. In fact, it's illustrated in the contrast between chapter 3 and chapter 4, where in chapter 3 Paul is saying, and I want you, and I'm going to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of God for Christ Jesus. There's this sense where you, you detect his passion. You're aware that he wants to go for it. He wants to pour out his life. This is a man of ambition. He wants to take the gospel to the end of the world. And then in chapter 4 we slam into this idea, but I've learned to be content right where I am with whatever God's delivered me in this moment. I have a desire to do other things, but I can be content in all things. Do you get what he's saying? See, somehow Paul was able to live hungering for more, but happy with less. Somehow Paul was able to live ambitious for the new, ambitious for the different, but satisfied with what God delivered to him in every season. He was able to sit in prison and yet be ambitious to be with them, ambitious to take the gospel to the world, and not have the fact that he was able to not do it in that moment of his life consume him and eat away at him and erode his faith or sense of momentum or sense of identity. Because Paul was able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations. He was able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations, listen, without abandoning his dreams. That last part is very important. Without abandoning his dreams. Because one of the ways that we kind of try to punish God for the poor decisions that he makes for our life, is, is we say, well, I'm not going to bail out because I signed up a long time ago and I've got a lot invested in maintaining this route. But I'm just going to walk off to the side here. 
I'm just going to take a seat on the sideline. I'm just going to walk a more marginalized life. I know at one time I was a firebrand. I know at one time I was excited and zealous and sold out for the Lord. But that was before I learned that God didn't deliver me everything I wanted. That was before I learned that I could have ambitions and dreams that remained unsatisfied, that I had invested my identity in and have yet to, 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 to take place. And so we withdraw our aspirations. We still serve Him. We just pull back on our ambitions and our dreams and our aspirations. See, in light of that, we've got to check something out about Paul because this is very important. For Paul, his sense of significance was not situational. It was not based upon his circumstance. His status was not related to his circumstance. His peace did not rest in anything outside of his relationship with God. He was indeed God-sufficient. He needed nothing more than God. I, I wish I was like that. I'm not like that. But I sure am inspired by his example. And I do know that the same Holy Spirit that resides in him, resided in him resides in me as well. But he didn't need something from circumstances to define himself. He didn't need something from other people in order to make him happy. Interesting thing about uh, Jonathan Edwards Marsden, in his, in his biography on Jonathan Edwards, makes the following insight about Jonathan Edwards. He said, for Jonathan Edwards, quote, his happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. I read that and I thought, can that be said of me? I mean, can that really be said of me? What about for you? Is your happiness outside of the reach of your boss or of your grades or of your family? Because I think that gets to the question of whether we really understand the secret of contentment. Now, if this whole thing, you know, we kind of wade into this, and this all seems so untouchable for us, like this is just a, a Paul thing. Now, yeah, he's Paul, but we're us. And this, this is probably, he probably got this after, probably like a concession gift after you went to the third heaven or something. You come back with this, and you're just content with everything. But, but that's not what Paul said. This is what Paul said. I have learned in whatever situation I am. To be content. See, this one, this one's not included with conversion. This is not part of the conversion package. I wish it was. I, I, I wish you could just send this as an attachment to an email and you know, double click and apply, and then you're, it's in. You're done. But it doesn't work that way. This is one that's learned. Paul says, "I acquired this. I developed this." And here's what's encouraging: it was available to Paul, and it's available to us as well. Now let's just continue through the text to see what Paul's saying. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, it's almost as if Paul specifies the field of play for contentment. And... Just imagine for a second that, well, today's the Super Bowl. So ima imagine life is like a football field, the field of contentment. And, 
And bracketing the field are these two end zones, two life experiences where our contentment engages our ambitions. And just, just imagine that all of life is played out somewhere on that field. Okay? So in one end zone, you have a, the times of life where our ambitions are fully satisfied. Paul uses words like this, abounding, plenty, abundance. He's saying, I can be content in those times. Abundance, abounding, plenty. He's talking about the good times. He's talking about you get a raise unexpectedly, or, or, or your wife gets pregnant and you've been trying for years, or you land the contract, or you've nailed the A, or surprise, you're engaged. The good times, those times of life where our dreams are coming alive and life is getting good and our ambitions are fat and happy. In fact, to adapt the Watson quote, we have what we desire. Now, don't miss this because this is what Paul is saying. Yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to do plenty. I know how to do abundance. Now, you know, you hear that and I think we all think the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Who doesn't? And if you doubt me, Lord, give me a Lexus and I can show you. I can do some plenty. I can do some abundance. You just pour it on. Oh, test me, oh Lord. I'm ready. (laughs) And, and, And have you ever noticed that our dreams are always dreams of abounding and abundance? I mean, it's, it's rare to have a dream where you're just aiming low. Oh, I just want to be, I just want to be hungry and my kid aspires to be poor. Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go! No. Because to dream is to aspire to a better future. It's to aspire to a better future. But here's the thing. Here's the thing we have to learn. Our happiness can't be linked to a satisfied dream. Our happiness can't be linked to our own prosperity because always abounding and always in abundance just ain't reality. And actually, study in Scripture and study in history as well, at times the greatest temptations can come not through trial, but in times of plenty and abounding and abundance and times where we're being praised by other people. Great, great little proverb, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, where it says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise? By his praise. Now think about that. Crucible and furnace both test. They both test by heat. They apply heat, and the test comes. Praise heats the soul and tests the soul And praise can reveal the soul. In fact, praise can get at something that a trial can't get at within the soul. So Esther, for instance. In Esther, we've got got Haman. Haman is this guy. Haman is second in the entire kingdom. Everyone has to bow and pay homage to Haman. And everyone does in the kingdom bow and pay homage to Haman, except one guy. Who was that? Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow to Haman. So what does Haman do? Haman says, hey, this ain't a bad deal. I mean, I'm second in command and almost everybody in the kingdom 
bows and pays homage to me. Is that what he did? No. Haman launches a campaign to exterminate all of the Jews. Why? Because one man wouldn't praise him. Because one man wouldn't celebrate him. See, the praise of most was not enough. He was only satisfied by the praise of all. His heart was tested by the praise of most. His heart was revealed by praise. Listen to the way Spurgeon said it. Quote, The Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. Now this is the point I'm trying to make. Paul discerned the temptations that accompany abundance. He saw that abounding and plenty had its own set of challenges. And so what he did is he treated plenty and hunger just the same. He treated them as places where he could potentially seek his satisfaction outside of his circumstances. Places where he could potentially seek his satisfaction inside of the Savior. So that's the one end zone. That's the one side of the field. Now, down at the other side of the field, the other end zone is, that's the opposite set of experiences, that opposite time of life, when your ambitions and your dreams and your desires are starved. Paul describes it this way, being brought low, facing hunger, being in need. He's talking about the hard times. He's talking about the times of life where we have that gnawing question or that gnawing statement that says, by now, I should have been somewhere else. And I don't know what that means for you. Maybe you've been passed over at work or the business failed or a friend that you had invested time in and made an emotional investment into has disappointed you or the pregnancy test comes back negative again or the leader that you respect fails or your retirement is forced. I don't know what it is, but the point is that you feel like your dreams are on a respirator gasping for air. In other words, your ambitions are starved. To use the words of Watson, we have not what we desire. Paul says, yeah, I've learned something there as well. Paul says, I have learned to be brought low. I I think what he's getting at there is he means that he's learned to be content when his life didn't meet his dreams where his experience didn't rise to his aspirations. He could be content with unsatisfied dreams or failures or mistakes. And he began to understand God in a way that God, he realized God would intentionally deny certain dreams in order to bring him into a whole other field of fruitfulness. See, we think just because we have dreams, that means it equates God's will. See, for for Paul, the lesson of contentment was so important in God's mind that God would ordain Paul to be brought low. He would ordain Paul to have a thorn in his side to teach him weakness. And I think we all have those experiences at some point in our life where we're just going along and we think this is the road. This is the road we're supposed to walk on. I know this is God's will. And then all of a sudden, this big boulder appears and we can't get around it, we can't get over it. And it just seems like God's will lies on the other side of that boulder, but it is, it's impenetrable. There's nothing we can do. And we slam into it and we feel the sting of being stopped short of what we thought was God's dream for us. 
But sometimes it's not a big boulder. Maybe sometimes it's just a, a little pebble in our shoe. We're, we're still walking, but boy, it's, it's uncomfortable to take each and every step. It slows our walk and creates small hassles as we're moving forward because we have areas where we're weak. We have areas where we don't have it all together. We have areas where we're just not put together well. Let me give you an example. One day, sitting in my family room, reading with Kim over in the chair, and I was in the other chair, and we're just sitting there, we're both reading a book. Kim hears water running in the basement, and so she asks me, she says, is one of the kids in the basement shower? And I looked up at her and I said, no, I don't think so. And she said, okay. And I said, great. And we went back to reading. And about 10 minutes later, this, this stray thought just kind of pierced my consciousness. Wait a minute. We don't have a basement shower. <laughs> I know some of you don't know me and you're thinking, could he really be that dumb? Hang on, it gets worse. So running downstairs, I, I immediately discerned that all was not right. I was able to discern that because there was a big hole in the wall and a pipe had burst and there was water shooting from one side of the basement across the other, shooting off the other wall. Actually, had it not been my basement, I would have just stood there and enjoyed it because it was pretty awesome. I mean, it was just shooting across the basement against the wall. But it was my house! And for some reason, I missed the what to do when the pipes break and you need to shut down the water immediately class in high school and didn't know what to do. And so I'm running around just flipping switches and stuff and none of that's working. And so I just go to plan B, which is just to run around the basement saying, the pipe has burst, the pipe has burst, the pipe has burst. I was so glad my father wasn't there. I want to tell you that. So I've got this neighbor. His name's Andrew. Andrew's a member of our church. Um, Andrew's one of these guys, you know, he, he has a spare weekend, so he puts an addition on the house or <laughs> something like this. I hate Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew is such a gifted guy. A Andrew is a guy that can just shut off water like Yoda. I mean, just waves his hand, you know. Shut off the water, Will, and the water just kind of shuts off and... And so, and so Kim calls Andrew and says, Andrew, it's happened again. And Andrew comes running over because he's accustomed to serving me. He comes in. He doesn't even look at me. I'm standing there. He doesn't even look at me. He walks right past me. He opens up the closet. He turns the knob and the water shuts off. And I'm standing there like an idiot in three inches of water once again ha ha having another insurance claim. I'm like on first name basis with my insurance agent. Now, those are low moments. We all have them. And, and that's kind of a comical one. But, I mean, let's be honest. It, it gets much worse than that, doesn't it? I mean, right now, the economy is in a downturn. It's, it's laying some low. People are experiencing foreclosures. People are having their jobs removed. There are income reductions across the land. This is what Paul said. Paul said, I've learned to be brought low. I mean, that's an amazing statement. 
In other words, Paul could be equally satisfied preaching before King Agrippa or when his status takes a hit and he's sitting in prison chained to a Roman guard each and every day writing letters to those he loves. In other words, his contentment was not situational. His contentment was not circumstantial. It was not based on where he was or what he was doing. It was not based on whether he had what he desired in each and every season of his life. Because for him, God was the same in plenty or want. And I think we've... This is what I want to get to, is that for Paul, and it's got to be for us as well, Paul's happiness was not linked to his dreams. It's great to have dreams. It's wonderful to have aspirations and ambitions. But our happiness cannot be linked to the satisfaction of them in each and every season of our lives. And how we relate in those times when our dreams remain unsatisfied says a lot about our grip on the gospel and the gospel's grip upon us. How do you do, for instance, when when your dreams and your life don't really intersect? Where life seems to force you down rather than lift you up? See, I think life changes when we begin to see the denial of ambitions through the eyes of of a sovereign, loving God who orders all things within our lives. Life changes when we begin to see ambition, the the denial of certain aspirations, the denial of certain dreams, not as ultimately a penalty or a punishment, but rather that sovereign and loving God defining the path for our walk. You know, just hemming us in by denying certain things. You know, it's kind of like we're, we're walking down a road and we're certain... We're certain that this road is God's will. We're certain that that's the direction we're supposed to be walking in. And we poured all of our passion. We prayed. We sought counsel. And we're walking vigorously. And we're walking enthusiastically. And then all of a sudden, a fence gets thrown up. And the fence is so high we can't get over it. It's so wide we can't get around it. And we are convinced that God's will lays on the other side of that fence for us. But no matter what we do, we cannot bring it down. No matter what we do, we can't get around it. And so we kick on it. And we yell at it. And then we take it to God and we ask Him, what's the deal with the fence? Because I was sure that this was your will. I was sure that this was my road. And now I'm stopped and I've got nowhere to go. And we engage God. And we ultimately reconcile it on some level. And we pick ourselves up. And we start walking down a slightly different path. And we're walking for a period of time. Maybe it's three or four years. Maybe it's a couple of months. And boom, another fence. And we have the same kind of experience. Not recognizing that God loves us so much that He will act decisively in our lives when wrong ambitions might lead us off of His road. That God loves us so much that He will install fences to keep us moving in the right direction. Because ultimately what happens is we're stopped from going there, we stop from going there, we're stopped from going there, but we're moving forward on His path. And so He hems us in, but keeps us moving forward. See, there is no peace in life until we are convinced that our place is His choice. There is no peace in life until that is a settled conviction. Our place is His choice. So let me return to the question, how do you do when your dreams And your life don't intersect when life seems to force you down rather than lift you up. 
great quote by J.I. Packer. He said, quote, The world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. Can I just appeal to you this morning? I mean, can I, can I get your attention and just make this appeal? Don't buy the world's definition of success. Don't buy the world's vision for success where there's no place for trial, no place for failure, no place for unsatisfied ambition, no place for I must decrease, but he must increase. People, people live their lives craving worldly success, never realizing that God may ordain their hunger. God may ordain their need to save their soul. That there are certain things that hunger and pain can only bring in our life that have a protective and a preserving quality about us and upon us for our spiritual good. We don't really understood, understand God until we recognize that God is more committed to our rescue than our earthly success. And that He will relate to us in such a loving way there are times He'll throw up the fence He'll close the door. He will define the path of our walk. And by the way, He doesn't always draw us in for counsel. He doesn't always engage us and talk to us about what He's doing. Sometimes He gives the thorn and He just says, no, you don't need to know why you have it. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's all you need to know. The thorn we'll get to after you die. I'll explain that whole thing then. For now, this is all you need to know. Paul understood. It's how he found peace in prison. Let's keep in mind, the guy's in prison. That his success was not in ascent. It was learning the secret that links his identity elsewhere. That our happiness is not linked to a future that's abounding. Our happiness is not linked to the future at all. Our happiness is linked to past suffering. The suffering of our Savior. The reality that we have more than we deserve. And that's why this entire line of thought converges in verse 13. The secret of contentment unveiled. Where Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So Paul completes the lesson. He's not happy that we simply know what he learned. He wants us to understand the secret. He wants us to understand the source. And this is it. You ready? It's Him who strengthens me. Me. Him who strengthens Paul is the same Him who strengthens you, and that is Jesus Christ. So Paul is here exalting in a relationship where Jesus helps him overcome his weakness, meets him at his point of need, meets him at his point of sin and his limitation, and brings God's power to him. In fact, if you're wondering, how can an imprisoned man exalt in contentment the secret of that for Paul and for us as well, is a, a, a power that is rooted in something outside of ourselves. It's in Jesus Christ, Him who strengthens me. So that's the first thing that Paul's saying. But there's another feature of this passage as well. Sinclair Ferguson says, quote, The Apostle's words through him are better translated in him. In other words, contentment is learned in Jesus Christ. Contentment is learned as we become experts at examining and enjoying what it really means to be in Jesus 
Christ, which returns us to the heart of this message and returns us to the primary point that I'm trying to make. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. And you know why that's such an important thought? Because at the heart of discontent is this conviction. You know what? As I look around at my life, and I think about all that I have, I don't have what I deserve. At the heart of discontent lies this fundamental, settled conviction, I don't have what I deserve. And the Gospel answers that settled conviction with this cheery news. You're absolutely right. And you can thank God for that. You don't have what you deserve. See, the heart of discontent is this subtle comparison with others that produces this idea that we deserve better. And what the gospel does is that the gospel addresses that head on. The gospel turns that complaint on its head and reminds us that regardless of our state, be it humble or exalted, plenty or hunger, abundance or need, regardless of our state, we live infinitely above what we really deserve. And that must be the starting point. That must be the point of origin. That must be the point of orientation that we start from in order to arrive at contentment. Because so often we approach trying to find contentment by turning our attention towards those that are worse off and pondering and meditating upon them and their state and then think that by turning to us, that somehow that will improve our mindset or the quality of our perspective. Think about it, think about it through this picture. Imagine for a moment that a man lives a modest life. He's got a, a small house, meager food, income kind of scanty, small. Drives a very old car, but it works for him. And, and, and he's often found complaining, Lord, I've served you faithfully all the days of my life. I've tithed regularly. I've gone to church consistently. Why have I not prospered? Why have I not abounded? I deserve more. And one night, imagine a little further, that this man has a dream. And he's, he's kind of walking along the river in his dream. And And as he comes close to the bridge, he sees a homeless man. And the homeless man is is sitting on a cardboard box and his hair is matted down because he hasn't bathed in weeks and his clothes are tattered. And he sits there slurping cold soup from a rusty tin can. And the homeless man, seeing the other man approaching, begins to whisper this prayer to God. He says, Lord, oh, to be wealthy like this man who approaches me. See, most most folks think that that's where the realization should come for the first man. So the point of this story should be that the first man sees the homeless man, recognizes the difference in their states, sees him slurping cold soup from a rusty tin can, hears his prayer, gets the contrast, and understands that he is far better off than the homeless man, as if the key to contentment is just to compare ourselves with those in less favorable conditions. Well, that's helpful, but that's not the point. 
We don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to those who are worse off. We find contentment comparing ourselves, comparing what we have to what our sins deserved. In other words, we find contentment by remember, by starting and remembering the gospel. Because what the gospel does is the gospel escorts us not only to the bridge, but beyond the bridge. And it's there that we are reminded in the gospel of what we really deserve. That we were spiritually wretched. That we were lost. That we were miserable, broken beings, destitute before a holy God. And what's more, we clung prideful to our place and utterly powerless to do anything to alter our circumstances. And we were dead. And there was nothing whatsoever that we could do about our state But God, who was rich in mercy, came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and and wrenched us free from our irrational commitment to our own destruction by dying in our place and substituting Himself for our sins and imputing His righteousness to us. He gave us reason to live and hope to live again. And as a result, we became spiritually rich beyond our wildest imagination. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've become sons and daughters of God. We who were worthy of nothing more than hell, we got heaven. We got much more than we deserved. And that's the secret of contentment. And when we have it, it frees us to be at rest in the present and yet still dream about the future. Still aspire and and be ambitious to do things for God's glory and yet not have the ability to do things for God's glory in each season being the thing that defines us. Paul, Paul sat in prison content. Paul sat in prison content, and yet he still had great ambitions to do great things for God. This guy wanted to take the gospel to the whole known world. He sat in prison content with great ambitions that were unrealized. And so we, in like manner, have to live at peace in the present while we still burn for more and ask for more, and press for more, and strive for more, and pray for more, and expect more, and die for more. And live for more. So, if you are here this morning and you have not what you desire, well, you're in the right place. You're in a fallen world and you're with fallen people. But if you have not what you desire, I want you to take heart, take comfort, don't take a break. You have not what you desire but you have more than you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank You that we have more than we deserve. Lord, if You give us nothing more, we have more than we deserve. Lord, if we never prosper, we never have our dreams fulfilled. You give us more. You've given us more than we deserve. If we never get the one thing that we've been laboring in prayer over, you have given us more 
than we deserve. And yet, despite that, God, you are a, you are a good God who bids us to come and to make our requests known. You are a Father who loves and delights to give good things to your children. And so we thank you that the ultimate message here is not that we just have to be satisfied with what we have, but that we serve a loving God who pours out bountifully upon His people to express His love and the generosity of what has been done for us through the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond to that word with a closing song and say, yes, Lord, and consecrate ourselves to the Lord. Let us stand and sing. Surrender all. Sing it with all your heart. Let the Lord minister this word to you with his active presence in our midst. Perhaps there's an issue for you as you sing this. May you just give it to the Lord and profess and confess, Lord, I have much more than I deserve in Christ. So let's sing this song to close. I surrender all. Take all I am. Take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior. I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow when I enter your house. So I surrender had an impression um, as I was walking down the steps there that, there that there may be some folks here that are, are living with a, a kind of settled, well, let's call it what it is, bitterness towards God. And that before we can really even sing and enjoy the content of this song and allow the content of this song to express how we really feel, there's, there's something in the way, there's something standing between us and God. And it's, it's, it's our sin. It's the way that we've responded to being denied in, in some area. And, I, and I'm not sure what it is, but you know what I'm confident of? I'm confident that while the word of God was being preached, God was speaking to, to some of you. And, and you know because it was laser sharp. And it, it, it just went in orbit around this area. And, and yet your response to this area has not been to trust in a loving God but your response has been to bitterly shake your hand at God and to withdraw from Him. And I just think this is a time where we, you know, as a family, we, we just have to be honest with, with God and come together and love and support one another as we, we need to go to God. And so if that's you, I, I want to pray with you and, and, and I want you to identify yourself to God. I just want you to say, Lord, that's me. And, and let's pray together and, and go to Him and, and let's confess our sin as we're supposed to do knowing that we'll receive forgiveness. Let's pray.
Lord, first we want to acknowledge that we, we don't understand, but we don't need to understand your way and your will. Lord, you, you've never guaranteed us a, a five-year plan or full disclosure on our future. You've just called us to trust you. And, and Lord, we, we have to honestly acknowledge right now that we, we haven't been trusting you. We have, we have grown angry and bitter because of what we feel you have denied us, because of the way we feel you have handled our dreams And as a result, we haven't responded to you correctly. We have sinned against the holy God. We have walked in unbelief concerning your promises. And Lord, we want to confess that sin this morning. We want to acknowledge that that's us. And we we know because the Holy Spirit has been at work upon us during the preaching of, of your word, convicting us and drawing this to our attention. Lord, this, this thing, this dream, this aspiration that just seemed to mean too much to us, we want to offer it to you right now. We want to hold it up and say we, we give it to you. We, we ask you to deal with it because we believe that you are so much more capable of lovingly stewarding that dream, that thing than we could ever do. And we realize that our allegiance and loyalty and faithfulness to you can't be linked to you giving us that. It has to be linked for what you've already accomplished for us upon the cross. So, Lord, we return to that point. We, we turn our gaze from the future to the past, and we rest in what you have already done for us. And even as we confess this sin, we remember that you are faithful and just forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, as we pray, as we turn back to this song, we pray that you would make the words, give the words fresh meaning to us because they are now a genuine expression of how we feel towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing verse 1 again. Take all I am. <laughs>